For over 50 years, the American Birding Association has worked to inspire all people to enjoy and protect wild birds. This podcast is one of many programs nurturing our community, sharing stories and news, information and tips from around the birding world. But we can't do it without you. Our spring fundraising drive is about to wrap up, and we're in urgent need of your continued support. Please take a moment to visit aba.org give or call us anytime at 800-850-2473. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening to the American Birding Podcast. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swink. Here we are, officially in summer. The solstice is behind us. It's the season of fledglings and ratty-looking birds. And on the plus side, fall migration only a couple weeks away, so we'll get to look forward to that again soon. But the big summer news every year is the AOS Classification Committee Supplement Nick Block and I talked about the proposals a few weeks ago. The supplement is out, so let's just say Nick and my predictions were about as accurate as they've been in the past, which is to say, not not really accurate at all. Of the proposals we talked about, the Mexican duck is split, so enjoy that one. Might be an armchair tick. That means that there are some mallard-type ducks in South Texas that have the genes of three full species all mixed up in there, so that's not confusing at all. Uh, that's not to say that I don't think the split should have happened. I do, but, man, ducks ducks are a mess. Also, northwestern crow, no more. It is now a subspecies of American crow or a Klein or whatever. You don't have to drive yourself crazy trying to identify them anymore. That's the takeaway. Washington, Oregon, British Columbia birders, congratulations. Uh, one less thing to worry about, although I assume that a lot of you lost lost a lifer there. The sawwet owl split did not go through. Neither did the great white heron split, both of which I hoped would. And the name change proposals failed as well. So scrub jays still remain scrubby. Olive warbler remains named as such, despite not being olive or a North American warbler. All in all, pretty conservative slate of decisions. I haven't read the comments yet, so I don't know what those will look like or or how close the votes were. If I were looking at these decisions in isolation, without taking into consideration the bigger issues sort of hanging over the AOS in ACC, that being controversial eponyms, I would suspect that we're not going to see movement on those either. But I am told through the grapevine, that things are happening on that end, and in fact, may have happened between the time that I'm recording this part of the podcast and when this podcast is released, so we'll see. I've sort of lost the ability to be surprised (laughs) by those that control bird taxonomy decisions, but maybe I still can be. On the show today, uh, we've got another Cedar Waxwing story, this one from Tyler Wilson of Bend, Oregon. Thank you, Tyler, for sending that along. But first, how do all the bird conservation nonprofits, government agencies, non-governmental agencies, Canadian, Mexican, American organizations coordinate their efforts so that they are the most effective for bird conservation? They do it with NABSI, 
the North American Bird Conservation Initiative, and I am going to speak with Judith Scarl, the NABSI U.S. Coordinator, right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of June 2020. Exciting news from Arizona, where photos have confirmed that what was thought to be a single eared Quetzal in the Chiricahua Mountains of Cochise County is actually two different individual eared Quetzals, possibly a male and a female. The species is a relatively late nester. It corresponds with the wet season in the Southwest. So it may be that those birds will nest here in the United States. Notably, that is not the first time that that has happened, but it will almost certainly be the best documented account of them doing so. But that was only the beginning of the exciting bird news this week as we crossed the country to Rhode Island, which hosts uh, one of the most exciting birds in the history of Little Rhodey, a state-first record of Tarek Sandpiper, an East Asian stunner with this long upturned bill. It was at Napa Tree Point, the southeasternmost point of the state. Uh, this species is somewhat regular in western Alaska every year, but Rhode Island is the opposite of Alaska in nearly every respect. And Tarek Sandpiper, extremely rare on the eastern half of the continent. In fact, this is only the third such record on the Atlantic coast and only the fifth such record of the ABA area away from Alaska. Other records in the western hemisphere include those from Baja, Mexico, Barbados, and Argentina. It's not a bird that gets away from Alaska very often. That wasn't the only vagrant shorebird of note. British Columbia's first record of gray-tailed tattler turned up in Kitimat, which is along the northern coast of the province, but sort of well inland. Interestingly enough, this is yet another shorebird that is regular in Alaska and as a migrant in Hawaii, but very rare away from those places in the ABA area. Uh, it's not only a provincial first, but a first for Canada. Other continental records of this species come from Southern California, Maine, and Massachusetts. And one more first record to note, a varied bunting in Oray, Colorado is a first there, perhaps not terribly surprising as the species is a breeder in neighboring New Mexico and nearby Arizona, and those records have sort of been creeping northward over the last couple decades. Those are the last week's Rare Bird highlights. If you are interested in all the noteworthy rarities of the week, go to aba.org RBA every Friday morning. And for up-to-the-minute reports, please join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare, or follow our Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. There are so many government agencies from multiple countries, governments, and nonprofits invested and engaged in bird conservation. And how, how do they know to coordinate efforts to, to spread their influence, or at least how sort of not to get in each other's way? And, and into this space comes the North American Bird Conservation Initiative, or NABSI for short. And I'm joined today by the U.S. coordinator for NABSI, Judith Scarl, who, in addition to this role, is the Bird Conservation Program Manager for the U.S. Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Do I have that correct? You do. Thanks so much for inviting me to sure. be part of your podcast. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for joining me. So um, let's let's talk NABSI. What does the initiative do and sort of what is... What is the role of the U.S. coordinator there? Yes. So the North American Bird Conservation Initiative is a it's both a national and also an international partnership that 
brings together that broad representation of groups whose work impacts bird conservation. And NAVSI works to identify some of the common priorities among those groups. And then we develop and promote a unified voice for bird conservation. And I said national and, and, and also international because the U.S., Mexico, and Canada all have NABSI committees that both work independently on country-specific issues, mm-hmm. but that also come together to collaborate on continental and sometimes hemispheric issues. And you alluded to this, but the reason that we need these groups is that the bird conservation community is so complicated. It's, yeah, Everyone has their own little niches, just like the birds do, I guess, uh, for what they want to do and what they like to exactly. do. Exactly. And and because of that, because of the federal and state agencies and nonprofits and other bird partnerships, it can be really hard just to get those groups to communicate effectively together or to figure out what they have in common or even to share resources. And so NABSI really provides a forum for those groups to come together and do that. How did the how did the initiative start? Like how how long has uh, NABSI been been organizing these sort of uh, all these different sort of or- organizations and, and nonprofits? Well, NABSI was founded in 1999, and we were actually encouraged and recognized by what's called the Council of the Commission for Environmental Cooperation, which is hmm. known as the CEC, and the members of the CEC are the environment ministers of. Canada, Mexico, and the United States. So in the United States, um, it's the the Director of Fish and Wildlife Service that's the oh, okay. key member. And so the CEC really encouraged international cooperation to conserve the bird species on our continent. And of course, most birds are migratory. Mm-hmm. And so we've known for a long time in the bird conservation community that we really need to work in these broad partnerships to conserve birds not just where we are, but at a scope and scale that's relevant to those birds. Right. It doesn't really matter what we do in the United States if Canada isn't doing something similar up there where so many of our birds breed. Yeah. And one of the one of the cool things is that the NABSI committee works continentally, but we've also sometimes started working hemispherically. And certainly many of our partners are working hemispherically to conserve birds on their breeding winter and migratory areas. Yeah. And so how does an organization, let's say there's an organization who's interested in bird conservation, how do they get involved in NABSI? That is a good question. And there are several different ways. So NABSI is a partnership that is open to all to participate in. And we have eight subcommittees that are focused on different topics that are important to bird conservation. So for example, human dimensions is a really big thing in bird conservation that when we're looking to do bird conservation, it's very rare that we want the birds to change their behavior. It's almost (laughs) always people whose behavior we want to change. Certainly easier to change people's behavior, at least theoretically. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But so we have a human dimensions subcommittee that helps bird professionals bring human dimensions into their work. 
we have a private and working land subcommittee, an international subcommittee, a monitoring subcommittee, communications. And those subcommittees are open to anyone who's interested, usually from the professional bird conservation community. So we have a really broad representation from those groups. Sitting on the NABSI committee formally is more of a formal application process. So we mm-hmm. have 30 official members ranging from state and federal agencies to NGOs to some of the other bird-focused partnerships. But we we really say NABSI is everyone. NABSI is all of us. And so anyone in the professional bird conservation community should be able to see themselves represented somewhere in the NABSI partnership. How do these coalitions look in you know, in reality, do you meet face to face every once in a while? Are there sort of constant communication between these organizations or, or yeah, how, what does it look like in practice? We did meet face to face until this whole global pandemic (laughs) thing happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A bit of a a damper on a lot of that. (laughs) Yeah. So we used to have two face to face meetings per year that were generally in Washington, D.C., where we'd get probably 50 or 60 participants in a in a room that would come and talk about some of the different issues. Some of our subcommittees meet by phone monthly. And then one of the things that's been great to see is that a lot of the people that come to NABSI say that the biggest value is just in the relationships that develop at those face-to-face meetings. So some of our partners will come and have a conversation over coffee and bagels at breakfast, and then that will spin off, you know, a whole other collaboration. So those are certainly still happening, even if NABSI is sadly not (laughs) meeting in person the moment. Yeah. I yeah. I miss my NABSI partners when we're not together. I'm sure because it does become a lot about the the people that you work with in those sort of organizations and and when you are able to see face to face that you have a lot of the same intentions and a lot of the same priorities, it must be a, a lot easier to make, you know, active changes for for birds and for bird conservation issues. That is true and also bird conservation professionals tend to be really fun and also yeah. really strange people. So it's it's just <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. So what are some examples of some partnerships that NABSI or yeah, NABSI, sorry. I always want to call it NACBI. We we're talking about this. Earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I always get the BMC mixed up. NABSI, what are some examples of partnerships that uh, have come from NABSI that have been really successful? Yeah. So the State of the Birds reports mm-hmm. are probably our best known project and partnership, at least among the general public. And so the State of the Birds reports are where most of NABSI's partners come together to develop a product that assesses the status and health of all U.S. bird species and that link bird conservation to broader outcomes like Mm -hmm. economics or clean air and clean water. And they really provide a, a succinct status report of the birds of the U.S. and synthesize the science in one place. And actually in 2016, we put out a state of North America's birds report, which is a wonderful collaboration with the U.S., Mexico, and Canadian NABSI committees that really um, jump-started that partnership again. But so the state of the birds reports are significant because they really highlight challenges and solutions at a national scale. And they mm. they can provide these overarching benchmarks through which conservation urgencies can be recognized. And this is one of the big ways that all of our NABSI partners come together t- to promote a unified voice about bird conservation. 
So one of the neat things about these reports is that more recently, we've been exploring having reports that focus on policy. And mm -hmm. so in 2017, we put out a State of the Birds report that talked about farm bill conservation programs and how yeah. the conservation programs in the farm bill, you know, really help private landowners, but also can help birds. And then in 2019, we put out a State of the Birds report that talked about the importance of state agencies in bird conservation and state agency-based partnerships that really highlighted some of the 3 billion birds decline science that we've been seeing recently. And some of our NGO partners then put out a companion insert or piece that linked that science with the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which is a new bill that's on the table that a lot of conservation professionals think can be a game changer for bird conservation. And so we really tried to make the link between what the science is showing us, what we know we need for bird conservation, as well as a potential solution that's on the table. Yeah. So how do you decide what to focus on on the State of the Birds report? It seems like there are I don't know, innumerable directions you could go uh, with each State of the Birds report, but you always do seem to focus on one specific thing, like, as you said, farm birds, you know, or, or the international focus or, or whatever. There's always something that you want us to kind of kind of nail down on. Um, how do you decide what to do in each year? Is there a, like a list of possible topics that you could do a State of the Birds report on and you just choose one of those based on the based on what you have? Or is it more focused than that? Yeah, this is always a big discussion that yeah, happens at NAPSI. <laughs> and, and sometimes it happens organically. So for example, in 2017, that was when the farm bill was up for reauthorization. Mm. And, you know, we had already identified that piece of legislation as a major priority for bird conservation. Same with the 2019 report that the Recovering America's Wildlife Act had been identified as this real game changer for bird conservation. And this pivotal paper was about to come out in the journal Science that really took a hard look at the bird population declines over the last 50 mm -hmm. years. And so those were pretty clear choices. We usually just have a lot of conversations and a lot of the focus of State of the Birds reports are also just conversations that we have as a NABSI partnership. So we often have a number of topics that we're looking at at any given time and think about what we want to influence at that point in time yeah. and what topic would do best to influence that. You know, looking at the cooperating groups, it is it's just like a really wide variety from various government agencies, including some that you wouldn't necessarily think would have an interest in bird conservation to birding groups like the ABA to hunting groups like the Ducks Unlimited. So what are some of the benefits of working with such a wide variety of stakeholders with what I would imagine would have, you know, occasionally conflicting priorities? Well, there's a lot that we all agree about in bird conservation. We, you know, we all agree about the need to work at landscape scales. We all agree about the need to work throughout the hemisphere for migratory birds, the needs for partnership to do effective bird conservation, the need for more resources to do effective bird conservation. And because there are so many, ver so many voices in bird conservation, it can often be hard to hear those consistencies. So if you're a leader, Say you're a federal leader and you're interested in bird conservation and you have a hundred different groups telling you things that may seem to be different. How, how on earth do you know what is a priority? And so yeah. 
a lot of the benefit of NABSI is helping to distill those voices and find the common threads, uh, of which there are many. And we rarely at NABSI get into get into local issues. We rarely get into single species issues. And so you'd be surprised that we agree on more than we disagree on in the partnership. I think one of the, one of the major challenges in the partnership that could cause controversy, although I think we handle it well, is policy. And certainly since we have federal agencies, state agencies, NGOs, Different organizations have different rules about how they can talk about, how they can communicate about or advocate for policy. So we're really careful to respect the boundaries of all of our partners. And sometimes that means creating a separate forum to talk about things like policy. And one of the things that's so important about NABSI is that we really value the collaboration and the partnership more than we push any single issue. So Mm -hmm. we're really careful to respect the needs of all of our partners. It has always shocked me, you know, looking at the the um, NABC website and seeing all the different people that are engaged in bird conservation, including, as I said, you know, organizations that I wouldn't have thought would have had necessarily an interest in bird conservation. But it goes to show that birds have a way of like kind of sneaking into a lot of different policy decisions that those of us who watch them wouldn't necessarily know about. I just think that's really fascinating. Yeah, and. Over the last several years, NABSI has increasingly been focused on relevancy. And, mm-hmm. you know, most of us get involved in bird conservation because we love birds, but birds and their habitats are also linked to a lot of other human goals and human activities. And so, you know, as an example, bird watchers and bird hunters spend a lot of money on their interests. You know, we buy bird seed or binoculars. We spend money at restaurants and and hotels when we travel to watch birds. And so, you know, birds overlap with a lot of economic interests in a lot of different places. And another point of connection that's really relevant right now is the connection between spending time in, in, in nature and human health. So we've seen a lot of studies that show that people's physical and mental health improves with time outdoors. And there was even a study that showed that listening to bird songs and bird calls can help improve mood and attention. Which, I, rem- I think I think we remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure birders get this, you know, we yeah. all feel that when we're <laughs> happily listening to our favorite birds outside. But doing things that help to conserve birds also benefit people in a lot of ways. And that's a message that we're really trying to promote because the broader the partnerships we have, the more impact we can have on a lot of different goals that are good for birds and good for people. Yeah, it certainly seems, you know, fairly obvious, as you say, to us to tell people, you know, why birds make our our lives better, because the answer seems almost so obvious that we like, why would you even ask that? Obviously, they do. But how do you convince people that birds matter when they're uh, when they don't know? Well, I think a lot of it is understanding what people are interested in and what people are worried about. So we as a bird, as a professional bird conservation community, we really try to find ways that birds and people's interests align. So for example, a lot of our bird conservation partners work with landowners Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of land management practices 
that are really good for the bottom line for a landowner, but that are also really good for birds. So when you have a win-win situation Mm -hmm. in those situations, it almost doesn't matter if the landowner cares about birds because everyone is getting something out of the partnership, including birds. Um, But I think more broadly, if you're talking about a general public, I think there are a lot of things that can intrigue people about birds that they might not know about. So for example, NABSE just released a Why Care About Birds campaign, and Mm -hmm. it really helps to showcase how bird conservation aligns with these other broader goals. So we have fun facts that are linked to infographics that are meant Mm -hmm. to be broadly accessible. Um, So things like did you know that birds can benefit your favorite beverages? And we talk about how birds play an important pest control function at vineyards and on coffee plantations. So yay, you can drink your coffee and your wine because, you know, thank a bird. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Um, And, you know, did you know that bird habitat supports clean water? And so protecting forested areas around rivers and streams is really good for birds, but it can also be a cost-effective way to bring clean drinking water to urban areas. Um, and if you haven't seen our Why Care About Birds campaign, I definitely encourage you to... All of the link in the notes. Yeah, we'll make sure to let Yeah, it was done in partnership with Diane Tassalia Himes at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. She developed these really cool, appealing infographics and did all the design work. So I love it. Yeah, and, and part of that is getting this information out to as many people as possible. How are you reaching out to people who historically have not had this sort of information, uh, you know, where they are? Yeah, that is, that's a great question. And we can come at that question from many different ways. So, so first, NABSI is really trying to empower our partner organizations to be better able to form partnerships sometimes with non-traditional organizations. And when I say non-traditional, I mean groups that haven't historically focused primarily on bird conservation. And so one of the ways that we've done that is we've developed a relevancy toolkit. And actually the Why Care About Birds campaign was based on the relevancy toolkit. But we compiled all these examples, often from peer-reviewed studies on how bird conservation goals and, and human goals overlap. And so we highlight some of these different economic benefits and health benefits and environmental service benefits. And the idea is that the toolkit should help our partners better understand that broad range of interests Mm -hmm. that might overlap with bird conservation and help us identify a broader suite of partners whose interests align with ours. We're also developing what we're calling a field guide to developing partnerships that walks bird conservation professionals through some of the different elements to consider when forming especially non-traditional partnerships Mm -hmm. with private agencies like corporations or foundations or um, land trusts, private individuals, including landowners. And so we talk about how, you know, how do you communicate with people whose interests might not be bird conservation? Mm -hmm. How do you build trust in these new partnerships? How do you even identify the types of organizations that might have common goals. Yeah, it certainly feels very sort of existential to the issue of bird conservation, because if we are unable to sort of broaden the the suite of people that are engaged in in this, then, you know, nothing is going to get done. And so it definitely feels like that's a a, a useful direction to go, I would imagine. 
Absolutely. And one of my colleagues, Greg Butcher, commented at the last NAPSI meeting that historically we have sometimes tried to do conservation in isolation where there's been a bird conservation issue and we promote that legislatively and we get things changed. And our social landscape has changed so much in the last 30, 50, 100 Mm -hmm. years where you know, our populations have increased. We're an increasingly urban society. We have greater demand on natural resources. And we really can't be doing conservation in isolation. We have to take human needs and um, human impacts into consideration more than ever before. So these non-traditional partnerships are really important. Yeah. What do you think individual birders and organizations you know, need to continue to do to, to make this case? Well, there's a great resource called Seven Simple Actions for Bird Conservation that's part of the Three Billion Birds website. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a neat resource because it provides things from simple to complex yeah. that individuals and organizations can do. So things like keep your cats indoors is an important one or make your windows bird safe or plant native plants in your garden as refuges and you know feeding stops for birds. So I think that's a good place to start for birders. And we certainly need more individuals to support the different policy actions that we need to take for bird conservation. So the more birders can vote, the more birders can write to their congresspeople about conservation legislation that's important to them and and important to the birds, the stronger we're going to be when we're speaking with that unified voice. So I think it's I think it's important to bring this up, especially now, because it's particularly timely. But a lot of organizations in my conservation network are really working to encourage people to spend more time outdoors Mm -hmm. watching wildlife or enjoying nature in various ways. And we've seen all the newspaper articles that talks about how bird watching is having a moment because people are stuck at home during the pandemic. But it's really important to talk about the fact that recent events in our country have also really highlighted the fact that being outdoors and engaging in outdoor recreation is not equally safe Mm -hmm. for everyone. And that these really deep-seated issues of racism and racial injustice in our country can prevent people of color from enjoying these safe, relaxing outdoor experiences, among other things, of course. So I don't think we can effectively promote conservation and outdoor recreation without also talking about and addressing issues of racial justice. And I really appreciate that the American Birding Association called out and condemned the situation that Chris Cooper experienced in Central Park a few weeks ago. And I think we need to be continuing these conversations and committing to actions to make the outdoors and our country safe for everyone. Yeah, I I totally agree. And, um, you know, like I said before, this, this does feel sort of existential to bird conservation organizations and just the birding community in general. Like we need to draw from a a much more diverse group of people, pull them into this interest and and make them, you know, care about birds and be part of this movement uh, that cares about birds. And I think that's the only way that we're going to be able to really accomplish anything because if we're kind of stuck in our little silos, um, you know, nothing really gets done. And that may be, above all, sort of the lesson of, of NABSI. We need more people and more viewpoints and more, yeah, just, just more passion for birds kind of pulling in the same direction. And I think we, we may be able to actually accomplish quite a bit that way. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Thanks so much, Judith. Judith Scarl is the U.S. Coordinator for the North American Bird Conservation Initiative. You can get more information on all that at NACB. No, NABC. NABC US dot org. God, I'm. I don't, a problem the whole the whole conversation, but uh, we'll, we'll get it up next podcast. We'll get it. I'll get it. I just gotta drive it into my head. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, thank you so much, Judith. This is really great. Thanks, Nate. I appreciate the time. Since the start of quarantine, I spent a lot of time in Juniper Park. I go there every day. It's basically my backyard. It's small. It's not a destination, but I love it. I've run the half-mile loop more than a hundred times, and I've spent countless hours walking around with my binoculars looking for birds. Every visit, I build a more detailed mental map of the park. Which fruit trees might be hiding warblers? Which backyards have bird feeders? And favorite flicker drumming spots? They love the metal trash can lids. Recently, I watched an inspiring YouTube video by Bo Miles called A Mile an Hour, Running a Different Kind of Marathon. As the title suggests, he runs one mile every hour over the course of a day to complete a marathon. In between each mile, he completes various chores and household tasks. I was inspired by Bo to complete my own mile an hour challenge around Juniper Park. I like sleeping, so I decided to do the half marathon version instead. Everything else was the same. Run a mile, do some chores, repeat all day. At 7 o'clock last Saturday morning, I ran my first loop around the park to the music of the dawn chorus. I know that chorus well. It's the same mix of birds that wakes me up every morning. Robins, house finches, lesser goldfinches, pine siskins, pygmy nuthatches, morning doves. A mile later, I was back home, eating my breakfast and planning my day. It went back and forth like this, running, cleaning, running, building a bird feeder, running, grocery shopping, running, cooking, etc. Every lap, I noticed something new. Lesser goldfinches eating dandelion seeds, a Wilson's warbler hiding in the bushes, and house sparrows nesting in holes in juniper trees. By visiting the park every day, I really get to know the most regular birds well. I'm also more likely to notice park irregularities. My highlight of the day came during my fourth mile at 10 o'clock. As I was running past a quaking aspen stand, I noticed a larger bird perched in a tree. I stopped and snuck closer. As it hopped from branch to branch, I spotted the distinctive yellow eyebrow field mark of an evening grosbeak, a species I had only seen in the park once before. A second later, two cedar waxwings landed on another branch in the tree. While I've seen cedar waxwings around town, this was the first time I'd ever seen them in Juniper Park. Raindrops from the night before glistened, and the waxwings glowed in the morning sun. Then, an old man on the path behind me asked, What kind of birds are you looking at? Some robins? I turned to tell him what I'd just seen, and when I looked back, they were gone. 
By the end of the day, I had run 13.1 miles, seen 22 bird species, completed only half of my bird feeder, and I was ready to enjoy a full eight hours of sleep. But beyond the numbers, I'd experienced a sense of adventure and mystery inspired by my impromptu meeting with those two-seater waxwings. In our modern era of e-bird and rare bird alerts, there's something magical about unexpected encounters. Quarantine or not, I will continue spending a lot of time in Juniper Park because who knows who might be visiting next. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and if you want to support this podcast and the many other free resources we provide to the birding community, please consider joining the ABA at aba.org slash join. We're also in the middle of our nesting season appeal, so if you have a few extra dollars to help us meet our goal there, uh, we appreciate that. You can go to aba.org slash gift. I want to make a special shout out to Julie Hupp of East Lansing, Michigan, Wayne Gelfman of Sharon, Massachusetts, Arthur Cook of Highlands Ranch, Colorado, Heidi and Dave Horvitz of Casadero, California, John Callender of Carpinteria, California. Interesting to note that is uh, the word for woodpecker in Spanish. Wish I lived in Woodpecker, California. And Andrew and Samantha Gerty of Buffalo, New York, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much and welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeff Gordon, who accidentally called in NACB, which is the National Association of Commercial Building Inspectors, when he was meaning to call in NABC. Obviously a mistake because you do not want to mess with the people responsible for inspecting hotels except as a last resort. Technical production is by John Lowry, who notes that his search for the Bird Conservation Group took him to NABC, or the National Association of Basketball Coaches. Interestingly enough, there is an ABA in that one too. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who note that NABC doesn't have a South American counterpart called SABC, and that instead means Spatial Auditory Brain Computer Interface, which I admit sounds like a bit of a head scratcher. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. You know, in this conversation with Judas Garl, I was wondering why NABSI doesn't just join forces with ABSI, which is the Amazon Basin Conservation Initiative, especially since the latter is almost certainly tired of being confused with ABSI, the Alaska Bingo Supply, Inc., even though that confusion is probably pretty benign. Was that a long way to go for a dumb bingo joke? Yes. Am I embarrassed? Also, yes. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. We'll be back next week.